everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Pacific Bitcoin Conference, brought to you by SWAN. Now this is going to be a two-day event in Los Angeles, November 10th and 11th, 2022. And if you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference yet, I highly recommend it, as there really is no better way to get integrated into the Bitcoin community. Speakers announced so far include Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, uh, many others. I'll be speaking as well. Uh, Michael Saylor is even quoted as saying, this is going to be the event of the year, so you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, so go to PacificBitcoin.com and use discount code BREEDLOVE to get your tickets today. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Obi Nwasu, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Robert Breedlove. What's the what's the history of um, what's the history of Breedlove actually? <laughs> I've never had a guest open me up with a question like that right out of the gate. <laughs> uh, it's, it's from a Scottish clan, and it it translated from wolf wolf hunter. Wow, down to Breedlove, yeah. So it doesn't at all. Not at all what you would expect, but that's where it comes no, from. No. Well, I was I was just in uh, um, Edinburgh two days ago for UK Bitcoin conference, and it was um, I used to live in um, Glasgow for four years, and uh, I was made an honorary Scotsman with a count at the time. So, <laughs> so it just reminded me how much I really like the passion of. Uh, you know, Scottish people and, and Scottish culture. So great heritage. Yes, great heritage. I just learned recently that uh, it was a lot of the theologians, thinkers, and philosophers from Scotland that created the spirit of what would become the uh, the Declaration of Independence in the U.S. Constitution. Oh, wow. I don't know a lot about that, but looking forward to learning more. Um, just by way of quick introduction for my audience, you are the CEO and co-founder of Fetty, which is a Correct. Um, new but very important Bitcoin company. Uh, you're also a board member at some other Bitcoin companies, which I'll leave it to you whether you want to describe those or not. And technically, you are a Nigerian prince. I just thought I had to throw <laughs> that one in for my audience as well. 
That, that's uh, yeah, I don't really uh, technically, but uh, um, uh, my my father was a, a king of a king of yam. It's a, it's a type of uh, title, and uh, um, as such, being his son, I'm technically a prince. But but it, it it's like it's you know it's um it's not a significant title. I'm, I'm not hobnobbing with the, the British royalty or anything like that. <laughs> well, I think uh, it still sounds pretty important, so you can use it with a lot of gravitas over here. Um, <laughs> this conversation has been a long time coming, and I appreciate you coming mm. on to do this. I guess you and I talked originally uh about this maybe what two or three years ago i suppose we just had kind of a long informal discussion about what we would talk about if we did the show and then we more recently had another one of those and i think you have some very fascinating perspectives um both in that you work very closely to bitcoin you see how it's evolving on the ground so to speak um working at the front lines of of this network and its proliferation in the world but then you also seem to have a lot of deep, more visionary type thoughts about where all this is going. And mm. so, like I said, I'm really excited to have you on and, and talk about this. And I guess a place to start, not really sure exactly where we could start, but this idea you have about the dichotomy between regulated and real Bitcoin. Mm. And now, um, I guess this is more of a future oriented vision where you see things going but if you would be so kind could you please just unpack for us what these terms mean and uh is this something that exists today in the world or is this something that we're headed towards how do, how do you describe this regulated versus real bitcoin yeah so 2013 um i am i co-founder at the time launched CoinFloor and it was the it went on to become the UK's longest running Bitcoin exchange but at that point and I, I could talk about that more um, I think we were um, in the years preceding that and early 2013 we were in the Bitcoin was being effectively ignored by mainstream it was still something only for geeks and, libert and a few libertarians um, and as such, um, the people around then had much more time to think about why they were devoting their time to this thing, what it meant. There were less distractions with alternative coins, less distractions by mainstream. And, and you saw that you had the uh, Nakamoto Institute would come out with these well-thought-out, long-form articles. And, and it was just a great time for people who want to think deeply about what what were the potential impacts of, of Bitcoin. And CoinFlow was no exception. We we were working on building this product. And, and at that time was just getting people to notice you, this Bitcoin thing beyond the distractions. Um, um, we, we would have lots of very deep conversations, my co-founders and um, a lot of the senior engineers. If you're an engineer working in this, you'll still be tend to be quite philosophical. Um, um, one of the engineers um, and I would have conversations about where it would all end up. Um, 
And at one point he, he put an article on Reddit, um, which as uh, running this startup, uh, so on, I didn't really want to put my name to it, but definitely um, we were uh, on exactly the same page with the vision. And it became very clear that we were going to see a, a, um, a, a fork is the wrong word, but definitely a split in Bitcoin. The reason why a fork is the wrong word is because a fork of a blockchain has a, a certain technical description mm -hmm. and the end result is two completely separate parallel blockchains effectively. At some point, they are incompatible with each other. We saw that happen with Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash a, a couple of years later, you had the wars and um, other altcoins have experienced a similar thing. But what became clear here, and this was, by the way, prior to the proliferation of blockchain monitoring companies and so on, but it became clear that there is going to be a tension um, as people, um, as countries, as regulators eventually started to understand the potential of Bitcoin. It became clear in 2013, 2014, that um, there will be increasing um, demand to regulate Bitcoin. But the true nature and power of Bitcoin is to be something that is freedom finance. It's, it's uh, this meritocratic money that anyone can use. And ultimate utility comes from its, from, it, from its network effect. And ultimate network effect comes from having the least restrictions on who you can interact with. Any restriction will reduce this network effect. And so these, this desire for ultimate utility and this desire for increased control over this new asset will lead to two types of Bitcoin coexisting on the same blockchain, not a fork where they no longer coexist, but on the same blockchain. And so there needs to be a classification of those two types. One would be, um, for want of a better word, sometimes in that original Reddit post, they were called black Bitcoin. Um, but uh, another way of describing them would be real Bitcoin. Um, and those would be the ones that are out with the regulated system. They are free, they, that you can send them from anyone to anyone. Um, but they'll be increasingly have difficulties being able to interact with the regulated system. And then there will be these other um, approved, um, or in the original article, they're called white Bitcoin. And another way I like to think about them um, sort of visually is regulated Bitcoin. And these ones would be approved and, and therefore allowed within the regulated system, and they will circulate, the circulate around the regulated system. And over time, the ability to go from real Bitcoin to regulated Bitcoin and, and, and back again become more and more difficult until we get to a point where um, we will ultimately see real Bitcoin not able to interact with the regulated Bitcoin ecosystem um, through regulated channels. The, 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 the regulated drawbridge will be, be raised. And so the only ways in which you'll be able to interact will be other mechanisms. Um, however, because of the because of the 
um, desire and value of being able to interact, even if they're in a regulated pass, um, for good or for ill, there will be other ways of interacting. So there will be some way of being able to um, pro provide price discovery. However, um, that's where the debate continued. Which one over time would be more valuable? Um, no matter how we looked at it, even though it may initially be that the regulated ones would, um, would from a common sense point of view, have more value than the ones outside the system. From our point of view, it seemed clearer that over time, the real Bitcoins would gain more value over the regulated ones. So much so that it became very important for people to understand that ultimately they should maintain a balance of real Bitcoins because they will work, be worth far more than regulated Bitcoins over time. And the reason, there are many reasons why that's the case. That's really, <clears throat> really interesting stuff there that this tension you've identified between Bitcoin that would be surveyed and controlled to some extent existing in walled gardens, I guess might be a useful mm -hmm. analogy here versus the Bitcoin that is just wild and free, right? <laughs> um, that, that does seem to be somewhat of an obvious direction it's going, but it's more interesting that you've actually decomposed this into the consequences. And the, the restrictions are interesting too, because I'm thinking, you know, money is valued based on its liquidity and network effects, which are almost kind of one of the same when it comes to money. And then any restriction you place on those network effects is it inhibits the the value imputed to the money, right? So, um, you know, in the modern fiat world, it makes you wonder how much money is just really being compromised in that respect. That it, it's not even really private property at this point because you can't, you know, you go to send a wire and they ask you questions. Um, obviously, the currency is always being inflated. It's subject to capital controls and other regulations that just make it uh, significantly restricted, let's say. And Well, the, so the, the, the challenge you have as well is if you have a system which is completely walled, and it, then there is no way to externally and personally verify um, your whether it's being debased. And there's no way to move balances off that platform. And at that stage, especially with the incentives of governments and so on, you will expect that they will start to employ the same, same um, processes around its control and management as they would do for fiat, i.e. they would tend to start to debase. You'll start seeing fractional reserve Bitcoining naturally occur. Whereas um, the Bitcoin that's outside of the and out with the system, that is not possible to occur. So one will be inflated over time and the other one won't. So although there is a, there is a drive towards um, increasing regulation in the Bitcoin ecosystem as a mechanism to gain legitimacy, the question you have to ask yourself is who you gain, who are you aiming to gain legitimacy from? And are they people that you should care about um, um, their thoughts around the uh, around your Bitcoin? And if not, and I think the answer is not, then we should just focus on 
providing an alternative system that can provide you the user experience of of this sort of regulated world without the without having to um, kowtow to the regulated world. Yeah, this I think because if you just engage in like first order thinking on this topic, you would tend to believe that the regulated Bitcoin would obviously trade at a premium and be more valuable, right? It's it's approved, it's mm-hmm. white market, it's compliant, and you know, all these things that we we take to be a sign of credibility in the modern world. Bitcoin sort of makes you question what those things even mean in this this Bitcoinized future. And it, I do agree that in the distant long run, the opposite would be true, that you'd actually have the, the Bitcoin with less restrictions, the real Bitcoin mm-hmm. would enjoy more network effects and then therefore be more valuable overall. And that you, it just gives you more options, right? If, it's, if there's a Bitcoin that trades between among all these jurisdictions and outside of them, it seems to me clear to me that that would be more valuable than the Bitcoin that only trades within one of those walled gardens. It's just the size yeah. and the size and liquidity of, of the network. And so, and I guess the other, this is something I, I visit a lot here because people will say, oh, well, obviously if you're not a criminal, you'll just live within the white market and be happy, right? Own nothing and be happy, whatever. But that's a problem because you might not even be able to own the real physical Bitcoin inside that walled garden. You might be just owning some derivative from a bank or, or tax or currency authority, something like that. And if that is the case or anything like that is the case, you know, they're going to be applying more and more restrictions to that over time, right? More and more control over that, that regulated Bitcoin. And so I think that is what creates demand for unrestricted and unrestrictable money over time. It's like people, life is sort of oriented towards being more free, right? It always, given the option, it'll choose the thing that gives itself more options. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here is the money that really affords its users the most options will tend to be the most successful over time. Yeah, and I think um, I think there's a... a... A, div- a sort of a development in thinking around um, optionality and and trust and verification. So, if we look at the existing financial system, it's very much um, um, that don't verify completely trust. And the challenge of that is it's rife with people being able to take advantage of that trust. Um, because no one wishes to verify. Now with Bitcoin, we have this base layer, which is which is obviously communicates and um, is an is a example of the of, of the philosophy of um, don't trust, verify, and that's a base layer that's incredibly powerful. Um, now that we have gone, you know, well over a decade now. I think we have a level of maturity of an of a, of a industry to understand that there is value to be able to form trust groups. Um, if you can form trust groups, you can um, any human endeavor that's above a certain level of complexity needs organizations, and there needs to be some level of trust. 
So trust is very, very powerful to be able to achieve, achieve big tasks. Um, however, um, when you combine it with the discipline of also always verifying as well to the extent that you can, that's when something special happens. So trust allows you to achieve big tasks. Verification allows you to protect yourself from people who will take advantage of that trust. It, it makes you bulletproof from bad actors. Um, and that combination is, I think, the final state that you want to enter towards. And you can, you can have that verification as part of the, the basic tenets of anybody within the system by having the money have that as its basic tenets. And then the philosophy around that money continually um, advise people and educate people to find any means possible to verify on an ongoing basis all the different parties that they are trusting. So um, that comes from a philosophy and the philosophy around Bitcoin has that. Everything else we've seen, the existing fiat system by decree, by trust is clearly not in that realm. And this other wave of all coins that tend to all be any significant one um, is proof of stake, which is again, it eventually becomes a trust-based system. We'll, base, we'll have um, flawed and weak philosophical foundations. And as a result, you end up with a flawed and weak end state. Yeah, it's an excellent point there that, you know, we trust is like a necessary ingredient for social coordination, All right? We can't verify everything everyone does all the time that would just be too expensive and sort of defeat the purpose of social coordination in the first place, which is the economic division of labor. But at the same time, that trust opens up the system to being gamed, right? If you just trust someone blindly without yep. any option of verification or, or yeah, option, I guess we'll do then you run the risk of making the system unstable, right? People just, violate the trust effectively. So you need verification as a necessary counter force to that trust to expose violations of that trust. And it's that balance that makes a system uh, coherent and stable. And yeah, that's why fiat yeah. doesn't work, right? Just trust, never verify. And then what does that typically end up in is a hyperinflation where it's all the trust has been abused to the point of yeah. decimating the currency system. And that's that's the, the the challenge is trust is is natural from you know the the point that you're from the point you're, you're born um, babies have to trust their their parents implicitly. Um, we have a natural inclination to to trust. Verification to verify a is not as natural. Um, because of the fact that say we we most people are taught to just trust trust their parents trust their teachers and so on and so forth um so if if you want to build a very strong um, resilient society you need to have some mechanism to remind people to verify all the time and constantly think about how they can verify 
because the trust bit naturally happens. You don't need to do much to make sure that happens. Um, now, having again, during many of these sort of early days when we were we were trying to get people to understand the, the importance of Bitcoin, we spent a lot of time thinking about how you could um, build up this sort of culture around verification that was a strong as the natural culture around trust to compensate for the risks of, of, of um, a, a society that's reliant purely on blind trust. And the end result is simple. Um, you, the base primitives that you build your culture on and that everybody interacts with, one of them being the storage and transfer of value should have that built into it because then you will the philosophy of the of the society that's built on a foundation of don't trust verify will build up a healthy a healthy attitude towards verification not just when it comes to their money but when it comes to the schooling when it comes to medicine when it comes to everything else it it's it's like this sort of um fort virus uh, a meme uh, i think now we call it but it's it's this incredible powerful tool that you can apply to everything else you do. Um, the importance is to understand that this, we shouldn't, um, we should use that tool, it's a superpower, the, the desire and the reminder to constantly verify what we do, but we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The ability to form trusted groups is incredibly powerful as well. We just need a healthy dose of verification to make it reach its final form. Absolutely. Uh, I think here of like convertibility to gold with a bank, you know, it's like, it's fine to put your savings in a bank and trust the bank to not run a fractional reserve or, or abscond with your money, but you have to maintain that option to convert into real money, right. And exit to another bank. And it's that the existence of that option is what keeps the bank honest. Like they know they can yeah. lose your business at any time. So uh, the word trust here, it's a little bit muddied perhaps because what we're really talking about is a reduction of interpersonal trust and an increase in, I don't know what you call the other one, maybe a phenomenological trust. We're basically saying a money based less on trusting people, more on trusting math, something like mm. that. That would be much more useful than this don't don't verify trust model, which gets us into yeah. lots of trouble. Um so you have this pen tweet. That's really interesting. Um, you basically, and I'll, I'll let you tell the story here, but you made a, a, a rough prediction of where you think Bitcoin is going in the years ahead. Um, yep. And you're, you're, you're quoting Gandhi here. So if you'd be so kind, could you just unpack that story a little bit for us? Like what inspired the tweet and then... Could, Last time we talked, you kind of broke it down into how you saw these phases unfolding. Um, could you just explain that a little bit to us? Yeah, no problem. Um, the tweets, actually, I found out, I, I, I'm not sure who the original um, 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 reference is for the tweets, but I, my understanding is actually Gandhi wasn't the person who originally created this tweet. Mm. But... But um, but most people um, attribute it to Gandhi. But that's just an interesting um, uh, an interesting aside. But 
he originally had this statement about how change occurs when when you have right on your side um, and you're you're you have a movement to, for change. And the the statement is first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. And as you see these stages happen, you should use these to give you confidence that you're going the right way. If they just ignore you and they never pay attention to you after several years, then you're probably not doing something significant. Mm -hmm. um, if they laugh at you, it could be then there's a risk that you're just doing something ridiculous or it's just the first um, sign that you are onto something. You know that you're onto something when they start to fight you. Because if they've, if they've gone through those intervening steps, you are you are doing something very powerful. They now recognise it. It's it's no it's it's more than just a joke, and and they they begin to fight. And as long as you maintain the courage of your convictions, um, and the fundamental idea retains its 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 quality and and um, and um, and its ability to change the world then you will eventually win. So that was the basic um, idea. Now, having run CoinFloor over the years, when we started, everybody was ignoring us. We tried very hard um, to um, get people to care about Bitcoin. Um, and I remember, um, going to events, talking about Bitcoin, no one wanted to know. And then um, something happened. Um, we went through um, the first, well, wasn't the first, but a significant bear market um, after Mount Gox. Um, Mount Gox is, uh, is an exchange that was at the time one of the largest exchanges in the world and it famously imploded. Uh, 2012, 2013 range. Um, and at that point, we transitioned. People then took notice because they started to talk about large amounts of money. Um, but they just thought that this was um, a technology that was bound to fail. And um, people working in that industry were, were often laughed at by um, members of the traditional industry, the traditional financial sector. And that proceeded for a number of years um, until um, we went through another rally in price. Bitcoin went up to um, around nearly $20,000, similar price to it is today, actually. Um, and it then we hit another bear market. The price of Bitcoin dropped. Um, and at that point, people still initially laughed at it. And then it held, it sort of stuck at the low few, low thousands, three, four, five thousand, and it sort of stayed flat. Um, but what was also happening was that in the Bitcoin industry, um, excitement for Bitcoin resolve was was stronger than ever. People were working on incredibly interesting projects. Um, we could see um, grassroots take up of Bitcoin was still um, proceeding. And, and then we saw another switch in people's behavior. And when I say people's, the, the, the traditional um, financial sector. 
and the regulatory and the regulatory um, space. At that point, they started the process of wanting to understand Bitcoin to set up crypto asset task force and the like. Now, this was the beginning of a very significant phase. Um, and it was around, this was around 2018. Um, and about a year later, um, one of the first um, results of that, products of that was on an international basis was the um, determination by the Financial Action Task Force, also known as FATF, to approve a recommendation for, um, for cryptocurrencies, uh, obviously including Bitcoin. And then it, it had a number of different bits in it, but the most controversial and the most famous is, is the travel rule. And what the travel rule um, determined was that just like traditional fiat, traditional um, fiat banking and the, and the, the traditional finance, financial space, finance space, Bitcoin transactions and other cryptocurrencies would need to provide identifying information if it's going from between one um, regulated um, service provider, um, financial service provider to another. Now, ostensibly, this seems to only be something that relates to um, regulated institutions. But in order to determine whether you're receiving money from a regulated entity or not, or you're sending money to a regulated entity or not, you would have to still do um, provide this information, like KYC, know your customer, um, or, or receive that from anyone depositing to you or anyone you're sending to, because there's no way you'll know that they weren't regulated until you know who they are. So even though the wording focuses on the regulated space, the, the, the only way of implementing it would require you to provide this um, requirement to effectively dox deposits and withdrawals for anyone interacting with the regulated space, whether they're an individual or not, at least for the first time to understand who they are. Now, it was at that point, we were at 2019, um, and for the following year, you could see more of this happening around the world where it dawned on me um, that we were seeing a, um, a process similar to what Gandhi um, had talked about many years, many decades earlier. Um, when I mapped it from 2008, when Bitcoin was first um, written about in the white paper until 2013, for about five years, it was really clear during that period, up until around the time we launched um, CoinFloor, Bitcoin was ignored. No one really cared about it in mainstream. Then from 2013, for the next five years to 2018, up until the second crash, Bitcoin was laughed at, it was ridiculed. And, and this was the period where I would go to events held by, in the city of London, by uh, members of the traditional space, um, these Chatham House Rules events, um, describe what we're doing in Bitcoin, and literally around these tables, we were laughed at. Um, it, it was, uh, so this is not a, a metaphor, this is the reality. It was considered a joke. 
um, friends of mine who worked in the in the in the city of London would again constantly laugh at what we were doing. Uh, we would explain how this was an incredibly powerful and transformative technology, but it didn't really um, hold water with most people. And then again, Bitcoin went from 19,000 and it dropped to by 70% or more. And the laugh, the crescendo of laughing continued. And then as we got to towards 2018 and it wasn't continuing to go to zero, the laughing died down. And it's around 2018, you started seeing these crypto asset task force. And what I realized when, again, having run a regulated exchange and, and being one of the people who worked very hard um, um, to help get Bitcoin exchanges be, um, to help them become regulated, because I had the, the naive view, the first order thinking view that this would be ultimately beneficial for Bitcoin. And maybe, maybe it was beneficial during that phase. Um, I started to realize that Bitcoin was being attacked. Um, the challenge here is that Bitcoin is a philosophy. Bitcoin is a technology. Bitcoin is code. It's speech. Um, it's it's non-physical. And as such, um, you cannot attack a non-physical idea with guns or nuclear bombs. It just doesn't work. So how do you wage war um, against an idea? And what should you look for? What signs should you look for that is happening? And when I thought about it, there's only two ways you can wage war against an idea, through misinformation and regulation. And now regulation is on a spectrum. You can have very light touch regulation all the way through to extreme regulation, also known as banning. But it's, it just exists on a spectrum, but any restrictions is some form of regulation. And those are the only two things you can do. And when I, when I realized that in 2020, I looked back over the last two years and realized that we were seeing an ever-increasing rise in misinformation about Bitcoin. And we were seeing the first fruits of increasing regulation. So my realization was that we were in the period where we were being attacked. And given the time it had taken for the other two periods of loss, I was pretty confident that we would hit a crescendo within the following three years. So it'd be another five year period. The other reason why I had that view was that the FATF's um, advice, because they're an unelected body and they only provide advice. It just so happens that the implications of not taking their advice are profound for a country because they would they would could be put on the FATF sanctions list which means that almost every other country's financial institutions would, would not interact with you, effectively um, separating you from the rest of the financial ecosystem, which would be devastating. So it's advice, but it's advice that almost every country always takes. But because it's delivered on a country level, when you look back at previous advice, it normally takes three to six years to roll out that advice across countries. So in 2019, the clock started ticking with a view that by 2022, most of the world would have implemented them. You get the stragglers over the following three years, but the biggest, most powerful countries implement it within three or four years. So that also correlated to 
the peak of the attack being 2022-2023. However, at that point, we have, we have two possible futures happening. Either that regulation succeeds, and um, in which case, Bitcoin no longer is real Bitcoin will, will cease to exist, and we'll only have regulated Bitcoin. And if we only have regulated Bitcoin, we do not have Bitcoin. Or Bitcoin succeeds. Now, um, when I looked at the ecosystem of Bitcoin, and I looked at the technologies that were gaining adoption, um, obviously Bitcoin itself and Lightning uh, were, were foremost amongst them. I had very strong confidence that um, when Bitcoin, when we get to this point, this final battle, Bitcoin will succeed and it succeeds by surviving. As long as, long as there is one node somewhere so running, then Bitcoin succeeds. And when you realize that, you realize that it's an it's almost impossible task for a regulator to completely ban Bitcoin. So Bitcoin will therefore win. And just like we saw in 2018, after Bitcoin fell, once Bitcoin um, continues to survive, the realization amongst the general population is that this is there for good. So this, so the prediction was that 2023 will be the final battle um, and Bitcoin will succeed. Now, um, I'm actually looking to revisit that prediction um, near the end of this year. Um, and to cut a long story short, my conclusion is that I'm more confident than ever that 2023 will be the year that Bitcoin succeeds. A big part of that is because if there was one area that concerned me, um, that area would have been um, custody and privacy preserving custody. Um, having run an exchange and, and they sold it at the end of last year, we had tried very hard, and this was actually uncommon amongst exchanges, to get people to self-custody. In some cases, we literally begged people to self-custody because although we are trusted and reliable, um, we understood that it's important for people to own real Bitcoin. And it became very clear over the years that the vast majority of people, at least in the next 10 to 15 years, would not be comfortable with self-custody, even though it's the, the gold standard or the, the Bitcoin standard. Um, and there were three reasons why. Um, reason number one was that for many people globally, it's just too expensive at this point in time. They need to earn more money, gain more wealth for them to be able to afford it. Reason number two was, at this point in time, was too technically complex. Again, there are a lot of very great minds working on making it simpler, but we're still far away from it to being technically comfortable for most people. And the third reason is that through years of learned behavior, most people are uncomfortable self-custodying and taking responsibility to custody on their behalf. Now, um, I had a, I had a, um, a user of CoinFloor, who's a really streetwise woman um, of a few, a few years older than myself, a bit more advanced years, but really streetwise and completely understood what Bitcoin was about. 
And one day, um, talking to her, asking and suggesting and offering help for her to self-custody, she um, told me something. She said, uh, look, Obi, I completely get Bitcoin. I completely understand it. But the thing is this, I trust you more than I trust myself. And that was really profound for me because it made me realize that we have to overcome decades worth of neuro-linguistic programming around people's ability to, to take responsibility for their money. And that's going to take decades to resolve and a lot of education. And I realized that we didn't have decades. We needed a way of getting people off exchanges because because of that, with the best will in the world, we were going to get to 5%, maybe 10% of the people on the planet being able to self-custody. But that would leave 90% trapped in this regulated coin world, which means after rules like the, like the travel rule coming into fruition around the world, which would mean that they would be lost for Bitcoin. So it, it was with that understanding that I seeked and I looked for ways of getting people off exchanges. And um, it was in 2021 at Hackers Congress that I um, met my co-founder, Eric Syrian, one of my, now one of my two co-founders. And he told me about a project he was working on called Fedimint. Now, in his mind, it was this incredible privacy-preserving technology, which it was. But it was much more than that. This, when I looked at it, having my background as running exchange and looking for a way to get people off exchanges, I realized it represented just that. It wasn't the, the Bitcoin standard of self-custody, but it was a way of getting people off regulated exchanges, which was an important, huge first step. And when you combine that with a, a remit and an objective of constant lifelong learning, where we, write, we weave into the application ongoing financial education and also providing the mechanisms to retain wealth so people over time gain um, disposable income and wealth, you could see a path to getting more and more people self-custodying as well. But the first thing you have to do is when the drawbridge go, gets drawn up, there needs to be an option for people to go to en masse at scale. And I believe that drawbridge is happening in 2023. And now with the existence of Fedimint, in combination with Lightning and, and um, Bitcoin, obviously as a base um, trust minimized layer, we have even more of a guarantee that we will win in 2023. Really interesting. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> and I give a company some money in case shit happens. <laughs> now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. 
And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoin. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Just to read the tweet, which I don't know if we did or not, but... You wrote that 2008 to 2013, Bitcoin is ignored. 2013 to 2018, Bitcoin is ridiculed. 2018 to 2023, Bitcoin is attacked. And from 2023 onward, Bitcoin wins. Exactly. Uh, and, and you posted that December 2020. So I think it's really interesting. And I, I'm curious, you said Bitcoin succeeds by surviving which is, there's a lot packed into that, right? Bitcoin is, that is all really Bitcoin does is it's optimized to survive no matter what comes at it, no matter what attacks are thrown at it, subversion strategies, anything. It's just really designed to survive and hold supply cap. I guess those are the kind of the two 
things. It really does. And you said, so Bitcoin being attacked between 2018 and 2023, these attacks have not become overt yet, though. I mean, I guess there's some subversive discussion about how Bitcoin is not environmentally friendly, you know, does not comply with ESG standards and whatnot. Do you anticipate a more overt attack on Bitcoin between now and the end of 2023? I, I, I do. And I think we're starting to see that. Um, If what I, I monitor various different things um, and um, especially the edicts of global um, unelected advisory bodies. So you have FATF, um, you have the World Economic Forum, you have IMF, you have the World Bank, you have the Bank of International Settlements, and you have the Financial Stability Board. Um, now, all of these um, focus on different aspects of, of finance, global finance and financial stability and maintaining um, orderly markets, um, maintaining the effectiveness of central banks, um, countering terrorist financing and money laundering and other financial crimes, and um, um, dealing with the um, payment of, of loans and repayment of loans from various countries at the um, the, the some of the more disadvantaged countries in the world. But taking it together, these are different systems to um, provide um, a way of maintaining order, however you define order, within global financial markets and in global economies. And they have all, um, in the last uh, 12 months, come out with advice their views, opinions on cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And if you look at those, and and sometimes they've come up with updated views, they've only got stronger and stronger and stronger, and they've only got more and more explicit. Um, it's one of their um, hot, most of their biggest hot buttons is stable coins. That's by far the thing that they are most concerned about. Um, and in a way, um, that's one thing I like about stablecoins because they provide covering fire for for the real um, the real important financial innovation, which is Bitcoin. Um, then they also have um, interest in the latest and greatest uh, altcoin savior as well, whether it be ICOs or then they move on to. Um, NFTs or DeFi or whatever. Again, I would argue controversial rule that I see a utility to these, um, but the the biggest utility is that they provide covering fire for yeah. for Bitcoin to continue yeah. to operate. But that is actually a useful thing that they do, um, and that is useful until we have the elements in place to to um, to make sure, or we, I believe we're already past that point, uh, the elements in place to make sure that we have all the tools to en masse get people at, at rapid, rapid scale, get people out of the regulated system, the real, the regulated coin system into the real coin 
um, world where they have the most value, the most ability to interact. The 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 they have the most. They are based on this anti-fragile money, and therefore we have the ability to create uh, from an engineer's perspective is the ideal world, which is one that's built on meritocracy. So, i.e., if you're the the quality of your argumentation and how hard you work should be the determinant of um, success as much as possible. Now, there's always going to be some inefficiencies where um, um, familial relationships and so on and nepotism um, can lead to short-term benefits, but we don't want it to be entrenched. We want ultimately um, good quality argument, good quality thinking and, and hard work to be the determinant, the measuring stick of, of, of success in the world, wherever you are. And while we don't have that, right now there's probably 50 Einsteins out there and 100 Elon Musks, but they just haven't been discovered because the way the world works right now makes it hard for them to be discovered. And not only do they lose out because of that, but everybody in the world loses out. Imagine we had 50 more Einsteins and 100 more um, Elon Musks working today, because they are there somewhere. We would all be, you know, living on Mars, using our anti-gravity pods to, you know, and we would have solved so many problems. So we all lose out from that. And that is the, that is, that is the potential for a world which is built on a meritocratic money. So, um, yeah, it's, it's now with the fundamental building that's being in place, Bitcoin has been going on for more than a decade and it's shown itself to be incredibly stable. Without this huge ICO-fueled marketing machine, it continues to maintain and increase its dominance. Um, it continues to become more and more censure resistance. Even if you take China, one of the most authoritarian regimes, and a, a clearly an authoritarian regime, um, uh, where they, they issued an edict completely banning Bitcoin mining, a year or so later, we're back at 20% of the entire um, global Bitcoin mining is happening from, from China. And that's where it's kind of, so if they, one of the most authoritarian regimes in the world, is not, is not able to control Bitcoin mining, then democracies are not going to be able to control Bitcoin mining, even if they chose to ban it. So we know that's to be the case. We know Bitcoin is, again, continued to operate in a really incredibly strong manner. Um, and we have a healthy ecosystem of people working on the open source technology. Um, we have organizations like I'm a board member for B-Trust, um, and we are locating, educating, and remunerating Bitcoin open source protocol engineers, but not just from the, the West, but from the rest. So starting in Africa, but um, expanding across the, south, um, the rest of the global South to add to the diversity and uh, add to the resilience of the people who can work full time on Bitcoin. So again, Bitcoin is really strong. Lightning continues to advance, continues to show this hockey stick like growth and adoption. Um, and again, there are more resources that are coming to play in, in supporting people working on that. And the final challenge around custody, I believe there are a number of people working on this. So we're not the only one, there are other people working on making Bitcoin custody, um, privacy preserving, and something that's viable, easy enough and viable for people to come off 
of um, exchanges and use. But I focus on Fedi and I know that Fedi and Fedi Mint by itself is good enough. So now that I know it's already good enough to get billions of people off, then this, the custody problem has been solved. We may be one of many people who solve it, but we only need one to solve it. And we already have that one. So the ecosystem is ready um, for 2023. Um, and so um, I'm really excited because we'll come to the battle with weapons that um, the opposition cannot imagine. And our objective is just to survive. Their objective is to destroy every single last one. And that is an impossibility. Right. Yeah. Bitcoin certainly has the ultimate or offers users, I guess, the ultimate defender's advantage that you can just occupy this nearly unassailable place if you're in the proper custody schema. And if you've taken measures in regard to privacy, then, you know, you're hard to identify even at that point as a target. Um, I like this. You've been dropping some good, some good bombs today. Bitcoin is meritocratic money. That's a really good one too. Nice and simple. And I guess it would imply then that fiat currency is almost, it's the opposite of that. I don't know what that is. Maybe autocratic Mm -hmm. money or corrupt money, something like that. Uh, It's not succeeding based on its own merits. It's succeeding in the marketplace at the point of a gun, right? You basically have to use this or else pay your taxes in this or else, et cetera. Um, and that I'm reminded of another Gandhi quote from that. And he said that civil disobedience becomes a sacred duty when the state has become lawless or corrupt. So I guess we're engaging in some kind of Gandhian civil disobedience just by working with Bitcoin or, or holding Bitcoin, saving in Bitcoin. Um, my question to you is if we're there Bitcoin is being attacked today. The fight is underway, let's say. Roughly 2018 through present, you think through the end of 2023, maybe longer if you revise your your prediction, as you said. But does that mean we are moving toward this regulated versus real Bitcoin split? Does that come as a result of these attacks? Like, how does that how does the attack on Bitcoin, I guess, translate into this split that we explored at the top of the show between regulated and real Bitcoin? I think, well, you've you've hit the nail on the head. Um, it will. It's one of these. Uh, if you can't if you can't beat them, join them. But instead, they want to subsume Bitcoin. So the idea would be to regulate it, make it appear like it's something that they've now worked with, but ultimately transform it into being the same as the existing system. But just maybe it becomes a rebrand, but it's, uh, you know, um, same, so same, same dog, new tricks, as it were. So um, the way you will see it is this adoption of regulation, um, the existing um, financial institution, the major banks who have historically been incredibly anti-Bitcoin, laughed at it, um, said it was going to not succeed, um, have um, offboarded more more Bitcoin exchanges and companies than you know you could keep track of. Um, potentially, both 
both openly and behind the scenes and made it very difficult for, in, for Bitcoin companies to succeed. And having run a Bitcoin exchange in the past, I, I know I've been through that pain. And if you're running a Bitcoin exchange right now or a cryptocurrency exchange right now, you will be going through that pain as well. And it will be 10 times more difficult than it was two years ago. But you will be precluded from stating that because if you say anything like that, the way regulation works is um, they are, it's, it's similar in most reasonable jurisdictions, but in the UK, you have this concept of being fit and proper. Fit, and, and that's, that's for anyone who's running a financial institution or anyone who's working in the compliance department. So the entire compliance department and the breadth of the organization at the senior levels, they have to be fit and proper. Fitness requires them to completely understand the technicalities of the law, uh, of, of regulation. But, and that seems reasonable, you should understand what, you should be skilled in your craft. But proprietary is a very interesting one because it's subjective. You need to behave in this proper manner, but proper is, is, is at the, the definition of the regulator. And they never make it f fully clear what that definition is. They give you these broad things that you should behave in a proper manner and so on, but um, they leave it for you to decide what that is. So for example, you have to take a risk-based approach when onboarding users. But again, you have to decide what the risk is and you have to decide how you define a risk-based approach. They can give you these high-level terms, like you, you don't want to take unnecessary risks. And if you are taking a high risk, then you have to have appropriate level of process to, to um, take that risk into account. Um, but both of these seemingly innocuous rules lead to this culture of fear if you because the punishment of getting it wrong is your business that you may have worked many you know sweated blood blood um, sweat and tears on um, and employs many people um, may be shut down with one major one mistake as deemed by the regulators and you never fully know whether you're going too far um, so this is a very powerful tool to control uh, a regulated industry. Um, and that tool only works if you're in the regulated space. So without having to do much work, I get this asynchronous level of, um, of um, control. And this is why you're going to see this switch. And this is why there's a desire to move people into the regulated world with these sort of enticements of ease of banking, all this pain you've been going through for the last 10 years, don't you want it to go away? Just agree to be as part of this regulated system and it'll be easy. You'll be get banking whenever you want. You'll be able to use all the services and features that you want to, but you are now trapped within the system. And the punishment of ever making a mistake going forward and letting the wrong person have an account, however you define wrong, we can't be very clear as to what is wrong. You have to define that. But if you get it wrong, you will never, and the actual, the punishment can be as strong as never being able to um, take on any regulated person role in the industry for the rest of your career. So you could, it's not just one year, two years, you could be out for the rest of your career. It's incredibly harsh punishment. Um, and so 
I've been on many panels with people who are within the industry and they are using this diplomatic language saying that they agree with the principles of Bitcoin, but it's important to put in reasonable regulation. You go off the stage and I'm telling you, I completely 100% agree with you. But if I said that publicly, I risk making huge repercussions for myself, the rest of my career, my company and so on and so forth. Um, so it's this horrible, insidious environment. And the moment I was able to sell um, CoinFloor and focus on on um, my new mission, which I'm going to focus on the rest of my life, which I always state is all Bitcoin, all empowering the global self, all with global impact all the time, um, was was one of the most uplifting days of my life. Well, I, I spent probably a week just sleeping, just recovering from eight years of running a regulated platform. And then every day since then has just been better than the last because you're free um, and you cannot put a price on this. And the freedom is, is a mental, philosophical freedom. Um, the only people I, I am now jealous of uh, I, I've met like in Hackers Congress, um, in other in parts of um, Latin America and Africa, where peer-to-peer -peer trading is far more common. I've met people who've been in the Bitcoin space for one or two years, some of them six, seven, eight years or longer. And there's a surprising number of people in these parts of the world that I focus on who have bought Bitcoin, have held Bitcoin, um, have used Bitcoin for spending, maybe even traded. Whatever they wish to do is they're free to do what they want. And they have never interacted with a regulated party from the beginning. Every Bitcoin they bought was bought free. All custody has been free from beginning. And um, now that they see all this regulation coming in for people who have bought on exchange and then withdrawn and so on, and there's still questions years later, etc. Their level of of um, freedom and um, and their sense of freedom is something that I, because I have I have run a regulated exchange, so I bought on a regulated exchange. I will never be able to have that, um, at least for the portion of my wealth that touched the regulated world. Um, but when you look in the eyes of people who've never had to touch the regulated world, and they've now maybe it was difficult to begin with, but they've now built in the systems and structures needed to custody and acquire and, and dispose of their Bitcoin for some practical purpose, whether it's to pay for rent, whether it's to do whatever. It's, it's, an, incredibly, it's an incredibly powerful um, um, and stark difference. And seeing that makes it obvious to me that these people living in real Bitcoin land it just you're going to see it's going it's going to be obvious to the people who are regulated Bitcoin land that these people are happier. Mm -hmm. They're more they're they're more willing to say what they want to say. They have no fear, um, and there's just pure hope. Um, I I can never have that 100, percent but I do want to provide systems that allow or that support and educate people around how to have that future because it's a much more powerful, much more uplifting future for all of us. Mm, it's beautiful vignette. I, that connection, you know, between those individuals that have lived entirely outside the system with Bitcoin, having no fear, like that almost is the definition of freedom in a way. Like you can have everything in the world, 
but if you're scared about anything inside um then you're not free right you're not you're 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 subject to whatever that fear is i guess so this idea of the connection between regulation and fear inducement in the society running on the the regulated money is very interesting to me um so okay we've come up on time today but i do want to continue this conversation soon Uh, obi as always man really great conversation and I, i look forward to doing this again soon Say so do I. Thank you very much, matey. Oh, real quick. Could you let my audience know where they could find out more about you or your work? Oh, absolutely. So me on Twitter, I am at Obi, at OBI. I've been in Twitter for a long time, so I have a free letter Twitter. And Feddy is Feddy, F-E-D-I dot X-Y-Z. And Feddy Mint, which is the protocol that Feddy's based upon, is FeddyMint.org. Wonderful. Thank you again, Obi.